The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. I'm your host, Allison, and I'm so happy to be back and I'm excited to get back into a routine of publishing episodes. I know you already heard my spiel in my last episode, but it's been a really, really busy couple of months. I've moved, I had a whole semester to deal with, I had a lot going on in my personal life, but I don't know, I'm, I'm feeling good. Despite everything, I'm, I'm excited, I'm hopeful for the future, some good things are happening, and so, yeah, it's good to be back. Thanks to everyone who supported my return by listening, and thanks to those who decided to come back for more. I really do appreciate it. Today, to end off 2023, what has been a questionable year at best, we're going to be diving into a case that has fascinated me for a long time. I've been recommended to cover this case I don't even know how many times, and I've admittedly been reluctant to do so because the deeper that you go into Robert Hansen's psychology, the more twisted it becomes. Robert Hansen is textbook deranged, so much so that you should recognize the reference of several famous books, movies, and shows that have featured elements of his crimes. They certainly were sensationalized. However, despite how prolific he was, he was only convicted of killing four women in Anchorage, Alaska in the 1970s and 1980s, but he admitted to 17 confirmed victims, with a suspected total victim count in the 30s. Robert Hansen spent his life as a loner, as a reject, someone who became compulsive, and then a hunter, and then tied all of those elements together to become one of Alaska's most prolific killers. With that, we have a lot to talk about, so let's jump right in. Robert Christian Hansen was born on February 15, 1939, in the small town of Esterville in the state of Iowa, United States. For my reading, Esterville is a quaint, humble place that's not known for much, aside from some pretty interesting meteorite fragments that were recovered from an impact back in 1879. Esterville is actually really close in latitude to where I live in Ontario, Canada, which accounts for the vast farmland and nothingness that surrounds it. If it's anything like the tiny towns that surround where I live, I can imagine there isn't much to do in Esterville. But Robert Hansen and his family didn't stay there for very long after he was born. Robert was the eldest of two children to Edna and Christian Hansen, where his middle name comes from. And in 1942, the family unit left to Richmond, California, just north of Oakland in the San Francisco Bay Area. Eventually, they all went back to Iowa and settled in a modest area named Pocahontas, for reasons unknown. I mention all of this moving around because it didn't seem to matter where Robert Hansen lived as a child or what he got himself into. He had a difficult childhood. Robert was a shy kid. It's unclear to me if this was an inherent trait or a learned characteristic, but I do know that he was relentlessly bullied as he grew older, 
for a difficult stutter and eventual severe acne that would leave him badly scarred even as an adult. Robert Hansen really struggled to make friends. He was a loner. Some reports say he was often rejected by girls as well, but I personally hesitate to even accept that he would try very hard to communicate with them in the first place, given his shy, loner-like nature. He spent a lot of time by himself, even at home, but that's because home life wasn't necessarily easy to navigate either. I don't know much about Robert Hansen's mom, but I can tell you that his father is described as domineering, and according to one article I read for All That Is Interesting by Katie Serena, he was a quote-unquote strict disciplinarian. Despite having a difficult relationship with his dad, Robert would be employed by his father at his bakery, a trade which Robert would make his own livelihood after dabbling in different professions after high school, but I'll get into that. Where Robert did find his escape was in the woods. He began practicing both hunting and archery at some point in his life, seeming to find some sort of refuge in these solitary activities, and he became pretty renowned at it, but we'll get to that too. The point is, is that Robert Hansen never really belonged anywhere. He didn't belong in Iowa, he didn't belong in California, he didn't belong at school, he didn't belong at home, but he did belong in the woods, by himself, hunting down large animals, and eventually he did find himself belonging in places where he could show off those trophies. 1957 was a big year for Robert Hansen when he was 18 years old. He had graduated high school, joined the United States Army Reserve, and completed basic training at Fort Dix in New Jersey. He also had his very first sexual encounter with a sex worker. Some reports I read noted that this became a bit of a habit, but it's unclear to me the extent of his involvement with sex workers prior to becoming one of Alaska's most notorious serial killers. If I can go off on a tangent for a second, during his active years, he was certainly involved with them and comfortable enough in those scenarios to coerce women into following him to danger, so I would imagine that he did have multiple encounters with sex workers during his youth, but really, that's just my speculation. In contrast to what could be a long-lasting history of relationships with sex workers, Robert Hansen's stint in the army only lasted for about a year while working as a military police officer. During this time, he had moved back to Iowa from BASIC in New Jersey, and he was also working as an assistant drill instructor at the Pocahontas Police Academy. And even though around this time he had discharged from the army, things seemed to be working out for Robert. He was working, he married his first wife, a younger woman who was entirely unnamed in all the articles and reports I read, and things seemed pretty normal. However, something was brewing under the surface, and something clicked in 1960, when Robert was 21 years old. At this time, he was also working as a volunteer firefighter, still in Pocahontas, and ironic given his occupation, he was arrested on December 7th of that year for setting fire to a Pocahontas County school bus garage. Many reports I read said the entire garage went up in flames, and a local childhood acquaintance said that Robert was one of the first firefighters on the scene that he caused. Some speculate that he did this as a sort of compulsive action stemming from years of repressing desires for revenge due to vast unpopularity in high school and during the rest of his life, which does make sense given his history, but it's unclear to me if he ever admitted to this being the reason. I think if he did, the irony of setting a garage on fire and being the first to appear to put it out might not have been irony at all, as realized by more people. Instead, I think more people would have realized that this action was possibly a small glimpse into Robert's compulsions for control and dominance, 
a harrowing window into his psyche, foreshadowing actions that would constitute and dictate his future in infamy. For the fire, which he was caught for, he served 20 months of a three-year prison sentence in the medium-security Anamosa State Penitentiary in Iowa. According to the novel Butcher Baker, a true account of a serial murderer by Alaska State Trooper Walter Gilmore, while Robert was incarcerated, he was given a preliminary diagnosis of manic depression with periodic schizophrenic episodes, with a note on his file also that he had an infantile personality and was obsessed with revenge against people he felt had wronged him. Just a note that manic depression is actually outdated language, which refers to what we now know as bipolar disorder. The change was made during the third revision of the DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Another note that infantile personality refers to a person demonstrating a lack of emotional development with a low tolerance for stress and a distinct lack of ability to accept responsibility for their actions, instead of relying on defense mechanisms. Although it seems that updated revisions of the DSM have characterized traits contributing to infantile personalities under various different types of disorders. Regardless of the nomenclature, it's no secret that Robert Hansen's mental health was shaky. He was unstable, he was compulsive, and setting the school bus garage on fire was likely only one outburst of many related to his inability to control his emotions. Further, it's also no surprise that his wife divorced him shortly after this ordeal. In the coming years, Robert Hansen would be arrested a few times for petty theft crimes, seemingly in alignment with the original suspicions that he struggled with his compulsive behaviors. However, despite all the controversy, he would end up meeting and marrying a second wife in 1963, a woman who he would end up having two children with. A few years later in 67, at 28 years old, his new family unit moved to Alaska, specifically Anchorage, where he would eventually open a bakery, just like his father. Again, the move seemed to spark new life into Robert. He had a wife and kids now, he was set to own and operate a bakery, and in the Alaskan wilderness, he was free to reignite his love for hunting in solitude, a much more controlled, healthier, I guess depending on who you ask, outlet for his impulses. He would even go on to set local hunting records, showing off prize games such as doll sheep. He made a name for himself in the sport, and he was certainly respected for it. He was known as benign Robert the Baker, with a knack for hunting and a white picket fence family, a humble man with an honest job and a respectable hobby to make his family proud. However, as I'm sure you can guess, it didn't take long before his ways of coping and managing were inferior to the mounting stressors that were his compulsive desires for destruction and control. In 1971, Robert Hansen would be arrested twice, once for successfully abducting and attempting to sexually assault an unidentified woman, and again for then successfully assaulting another one. In the first offense, he was convicted for assault with a dangerous weapon and received a five-year sentence with a court-ordered psychiatric assessment and recommended treatment. Unfortunately, the assault against the second woman was dropped as part of a plea bargain, likely because she was a sex worker. Despite the five-year sentence, though, he only ended up serving six months, where afterwards he was placed on work release to continue supporting his family from a halfway house, and he stayed there for about a year. Interestingly, the psychiatric report submitted by Dr. J. Ray Langdon in 1972 after the charges were sorted out stated again that Hansen's criminal activity seemed to stem from illness, illness that would be difficult to treat, and, quote, inability to resist and a feeling of being forced, end quote. 
But then, weirdly, another letter from the same physician only eight months later stated that Robert Hansen had made sufficient progress and improvements in therapy to warrant his release on parole. What he didn't know is that, in hindsight, it's thought that by this point, or at least sometime shortly after, Robert Hansen had already begun kidnapping his upwards of 30-ish victims and setting them free in the Alaskan wilderness to be hunted like the game animals he was prized for. Notably, if you know anything about flying, you'll know that Robert Hansen should have had a hard time getting his pilot license, given his history of psychiatric illness and a prescription for lithium that he was given on account of his bipolar disorder. However, throughout his life, Hansen has been repeatedly able to weasel his way in and out of trouble, albeit some of his victims were transported by camper van. But inevitably, Robert Hansen was able to purchase and register planes with the United States Federal Aviation Administration under his own name, therefore allowing him to transport victims to the Alaskan bush even without a pilot license. On June 13, 1983, Robert Hansen offered 17-year-old sex worker Cindy Paulson $200 to get into his car and perform oral sex on him. When she did, he pulled a gun on her and drove her into the Raven Hill Apartments parking lot nearby his house in Anchorage. It later came out that when he was killing women, he would often go here due to its seclusion, either here or a nearby gravel pit to intimidate women he had kidnapped, before taking them to remote locations to hunt them down. He gave Cindy Paulson what he would later refer to as the quote-unquote standard speech, essentially comprised of telling her that she should have known there was risk to her profession, but that if she complies, she won't get hurt, and that she needs to be more careful who she propositions with sex. With a fistful of her hair from the back of her head in his hand and a gun to her face. Robert Hansen then held her captive in his home and sexually assaulted her before taking her in his vehicle to the Merrill Field Airport. He told Cindy that he intended to take her out to his cabin, which was a small shack in the Nick River area of the Matanuska Susitna Valley. This was effectively just the wilderness, it was northwest of Anchorage and it was a place only accessible by bush plane, which is what he had, a Piper PA-18 Super Club. Cindy crouched in the back seat of Robert Hansen's car and found herself in a position where an opportunity to escape had presented itself once they arrived at the airport. With her wrists cuffed in front of her, while Robert Hansen was loading the cockpit of his plane, she crawled out of the back seat of his car and opened the driver's side door before running barefoot and handcuffed toward the nearby 6th Avenue. Robert had noticed and began chasing her, but she was able to flag down a nearby truck driven by a young man named Robert Yount, who picked her up and drove her by request to the Mush Inn Motel. The next few details are a bit fuzzy, but Robert Yount, the driver who rescued Cindy, reported to police what had happened. Either they had arrived to the Mush Inn to find Cindy alone in a room, or they had arrived to discover that she had requested the motel clerk call her boyfriend who had worked at a different hotel, the Big Timber, and she had gotten a cab there. Regardless of which hotel Cindy was at, Anchorage police did find her alive and took her down to police headquarters where they took her statement. Cindy would describe her attacker to police and later tell investigators that she had left a blue sneaker on the passenger's side floor in the back of the car as evidence that she had been there. However, when questioned, Robert Hansen denied everything. He was insistent to Anchorage police that Cindy was simply trying to cause problems for him and that he had an alibi which corroborated that he was nowhere near the location Cindy had pinpointed, which was that his wife and his kids were vacationing in Europe, so he had spent the entire night with two of his friends. 
Apparently, two of his friends decided to corroborate this alibi, and given that, his meek demeanor, his humble occupation as the town baker, and his reputation with impressive hobbyist hunting skills, law enforcement saw it fit to release Robert Hansen without pressing any charges. And Cindy was simply left to process the ordeal she had just been through, despite Alaska State Troopers already being clued in to the fact that there was likely a serial predator on the hunt around Anchorage, Seward, and the Matanuska, Sisintna Valley area. Detective Glenn Floth with the Alaska State Troopers has been a figurehead of said suspicions and investigations, and he maintained suspicion of Hansen despite the legal consensus to release him after the Cindy Paulson incident. Despite his release, Detective Floth understood that in the years prior, law enforcement agencies had responded to the scenes of several discovered bodies of missing women, the first of which being a still-unidentified woman who was discovered three years prior to Cindy's attempted kidnapping in 1980. That July, a young woman was discovered near a power line in a wooded area approximately a mile or so south of South Atlukna Lake Road in the northern part of Anchorage. Information from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NECMEC, tells readers that this woman is believed to actually be between the ages of 16 and 25 years old. Maybe I'm misspeaking when I call her a woman. She was possibly a child, and she was really small. NECMEC says she was between 4 foot 11 and 5 foot 1, likely with long brown, slightly red-tinted hair, and she was white with possible indigenous heritage. She has been referred to as the Eklutna Annie or the Adlutna Annie Doe, and she was found wearing a brown leather jacket, a light-colored knitted sweater, jeans, and red, knee-high, high-heeled boots. She also had several pieces of jewelry on her, including a copper bracelet and several pieces of jewelry with turquoise stones on them. Eklutna Annie also had a Timex wristwatch with a gold chain band and Salem brand matches found in the pocket of her leather jacket. It's unclear from my reading if she was still dressed in these items, or if some or all were scattered around her remains. However, I would have to guess that they were at least partially scattered, as it is reported that her body was largely consumed by wildlife when it was found in a shallow grave, at least a year after it's thought that she was murdered. Eklitna Annie again has still never been identified. Taking us out of the timeline for a second, it's believed she may have arrived in Alaska from California, with some earlier reports speculating that she'd come from Kodiak, Alaska, a small island south of the mainland. If you know anything about Eklutna Annie, I will have all the information on her, as well as her agency contacts, available on my website at chromopediapon.ca. In addition to Eklutna Annie, later that year in 1980, Detective Glenn Floth also recalled the discovery of 24-year-old Joanne Messina, Joanne disappeared from Seward, Alaska in May of 1980 after going out to dinner. She was reportedly a nurse who had left her husband back in New York to travel westward before ending up in a rooming house. Apparently, Joanne spent most of her time alone with her German shepherd, who warded off many by never leaving her side. But when she left and didn't return, conflicting reports say either another woman at the boarding house or her boyfriend at the time reported her missing. Joanne's body was found just under two months later, in July 1980, just like Eklutna Annie. She was severely decomposed, she was largely consumed by wildlife, with her dog and her belongings tossed into the wilderness somewhere before she was left in a gravel pit. Even further, Detective Floth also recalled the discovery of 23-year-old Sherry Morrow, 
who was working as a topless dancer, and disappeared on November 17, 1981. Sherry went missing after telling her friends that she was meeting a photographer who had promised her $300 in exchange for nude images. Her body was found a year later, in September of 1982, in a shallow grave in a Nick River sandbar north of Anchorage, in an area only accessible by car, airplane, or boat. Some investigators doubted that Sherry's disappearance and death were related to others in the area, such as the discoveries of the Eklutna Annie Doe and Joanne Messina, as well as other women who had gone missing, such as 24-year-old Roxanne Eastland, 41-year-old Lisa Futrell, and 24-year-old Andrea Mona Altieri. However, after the discovery of Sherry Morrow, Alaska State Troopers such as Glenn Floth as well as Sergeant Lyle Huskovin began sharing files with the Anchorage Police Department, and it seemed that Glenn's suspicions might have been correct. There was a serial predator on the loose in Alaska. Detective Floth was convinced that the Eklutna Annie Doe, Joanne Messina, and Sherry Morrow had all been kidnapped and murdered by the same person. However, there was not much to go in the way of investigative clues. And don't forget, Cindy Paulson's testimony of being abducted and assaulted had been dismissed when it was taken. But in the meantime, as Detective Floth had debated in his mind what his next possible investigative steps could be, another body was found. 17-year-old Paula Goulding, a topless dancer who had disappeared from Anchorage on April 25, 1983, was found in the Nick River buried in a shallow grave, just like Sherry Morrow. Also like Sherry, Paula had been offered money in exchange for sex before going missing and being found months later. With the three previous murders, now Paula's case and close examination of her body revealing a similar story as the others, as well as testimony from Cindy Paulson being revisited, Detective Floth was convinced now more than ever that there was a serial murderer on the loose. In response, he contacted FBI Special Agent John Douglas with a request for help and the curation of an offender profile based on the crimes he had to work with. If you recognize the name John Douglas, it's because he is the original author of Mindhunter, which features much of his work on the case of Robert Hansen. In the book, Douglas describes the original offender profile developed for whomever he thought was responsible for picking off women in Alaska. He thought it was likely an experienced hunter, and thus someone likely to keep souvenirs from his murders. Someone likely with low self-esteem, and a history of rejection from women. Someone possibly with a stutter. Someone possibly with a plane to access the remote areas that bodies were being found in. This person probably targeted sex workers, which we would later learn was true, but only as Robert Hansen's victim profile became more specific. This person did so likely because the majority at the time were considered transient and, quote, usually went unnoticed. With this information, Detective Floth and others from the Alaska State Troopers and Anchorage Police Department scoured through possible suspects based on Douglas's offender profile, but Robert Hansen continued to be the most likely candidate. With his history of violent crimes, including the attempted and successful assaults of women in the 70s for which he was convicted for, the psychiatric diagnoses involving impulse control issues and ties to violence based on those behaviors, as well as the testimony from Cindy Paulson that again was revisited, it just made sense. Given this, John Douglas looked into it and noted that Robert Hansen was a small guy, covered in acne scars, and he had a speech impediment, 
all things that might have contributed to an inferiority complex, possibly led to rejection by women, and thus a need for control. Douglas noted that consequently, Robert Hansen probably had low self-esteem, which was substantiated from anecdotes about years of childhood and teenagehood teasing, as well as him living in isolated areas, finding solitude in hunting, and sourcing trophies for himself that represented his non-human victims. Douglas noted how transferable Robert Hansen's life story was to his own offender profile, and that if he is the killer, he was probably killing out of revenge, perhaps becoming more interested in a larger prey, or at least the rush of being overcome with feelings of dominance and superiority when such larger human prey were subdued, begging for their lives as opposed to him feeling too shy to beg for their attention. Douglas then proposed that if they searched, investigators would likely find souvenirs and evidence related to the murders in Hansen's home. But at the same time, the investigative team knew that if this was their guy, they needed more. They knew the only real way to rule him out of the investigation would be to find a hole in his alibi, the one that he had given on the night of Cindy Paulson's abduction and escape. Special Agent Douglas suspected that Robert Hansen's friends might have been lying for him, and so he encouraged police to bring them in for questioning and to threaten charges if they were not forthcoming. It turned out that he was right. It was easy enough to get both of his friends, who comprised Hansen's entire alibi on the night of Cindy's attack, to admit that they were lying. Further, police were also able to coax out that Hansen himself was committing insurance fraud, as he had reported a burglary and simply stashed his possessions at one of their houses. The money from this claim is what he had used to open his bakery. So, supported by testimony from Hansen's friends, Cindy Paulson, as well as the offender profile from Special Agent John Douglas, Detective Floth was able to get eight warrants to search Robert Hansen's properties with a 48-page affidavit summarizing all points that led to Robert Hansen being responsible for at least the four murders that they had known about, but likely more, given that women were disappearing left and right from Alaska. On October 27th of 1983, investigators followed Robert Hansen to work at his bakery and asked him to come in for questioning. Simultaneously, warrants were executed to search his house and his plane, and in the home, they found jewelry and ID cards belonging to missing and murdered women, newspaper clippings, as well as an array of items hidden in an attic corner, including a Remington 552 rifle, a Thompson Contender 7mm single-shot pistol, a Winchester 12-gauge shotgun, and a 223 caliber Ruger Mini 14 semi-automatic rifle, the same rifle thought to have killed many of his victims. In addition, behind Robert Hansen's headboard, they found an aeronautical chart with 37 X's marked on it, scattered all over the map of the Alaskan bush. Many of these X's matched sites where bodies had already been found, which led investigators to believe that this was nothing short of a body map. When confronted, Robert Hansen initially denied all wrongdoing as long as possible. However, his true colors began to show as he eventually started blaming his actions on the sex workers he attacked. But this was not before he requested an attorney and was placed under arrest anyways, given the mounting evidence against him for the kidnapping and assault of Cindy Paulson, weapons offenses uncovered during the warrants being executed, theft and insurance fraud thanks to his friends talking to police, and eventually Robert Hansen would confess to each item presented to him found in his home. However, 
he maintained his innocence in crimes against women who were not sex workers. Yet, regardless of their occupation, they all met the same fate. Abducted, assaulted, and either threatened with more violence if, quote, things went right and they were released, or they were set free in the Alaskan wilderness to run while he hunted them. Robert Hansen admitted to stabbing the Eklutna Annie Doe in the back after she made an attempt to escape his car. He admitted that everything was going well with Joanne Messina until something set him off, so he refused to pay for her services and release her, instead driving her and her dog to a remote area northeast of Seward called Snow River, before hitting her with a 22 caliber revolver and shooting her twice, and the dog once. He admitted to shooting Sherry Morrow three times in the back with his 223 Ruger Mini-14, which was corroborated by that same gun found in his home and the cartridge found near her remains. He admitted to driving Paula Goulding to his plane, shackling her and demanding she exit the aircraft upon arrival to a remote location before giving her a running head start and shooting her with that same 223 caliber bullet. On November 3, 1983, Only a few days after he was arrested, an Anchorage grand jury returned four indictments against Robert Hansen for first-degree assault and kidnapping, five counts of misconduct in possession of guns, theft in the second degree, and theft by deception and insurance fraud. At the time, investigators were certain they had had their serial murderer, but they were still waiting on ballistics test results, attempting to match up the guns found in his home with injuries from crime scenes. So, for the time being, the state of Alaska had elected to hold off on murder charges, but not for long. Ballistics from the FBI crime lab in Washington, D.C. determined on November 20th that shell casings found at gravesites had all been fired from Hansen's weapons. From there, it was a done deal. But again, police knew that there were more victims. There just had to be. And they were right. Given the mounting evidence against him and the aforementioned more victims Robert Hansen was responsible for, which he could serve as legal leverage, on February 22nd of 1984, he arranged for his defense attorney to set up a meeting with the Anchorage District Attorney, Victor Crum. During this meeting, Crum offered Robert Hansen a deal, where in exchange for a full confession and identification of locations where other victims' remains were, Hansen would only be charged with the four murders police had already discovered, and he'd be able to serve his time in a nicer, cozier federal facility as opposed to a maximum security institution. Hansen agreed and outlined exactly how a quote-unquote typical murder would go. Robert Hansen, by the time he graduated from using his vehicle to transport victims and moved on to his plane, would coerce women first through benign means and then eventual violent threats, all the way to the Merrill Field Airport. He would then fly them to his remote cabin before brutally assaulting them and sometimes torturing them. Then he would sometimes blindfold them, strip them naked, and set them free in the Alaskan bush, giving them a brief running head start before hunting them down with a knife or a rifle. To investigators, Robert Hansen was describing a sick game, one not complete once his victim was on the ground, as he would attend to their bodies, collect an appropriate trophy, and given that many were found shot but without damage to their clothing, likely redress them. Further, Robert Hansen was then presented with an aerial map where he identified 15 grave sites. He was flown to each, and by the end, investigators had a very large pile of cases to close. Mind you, Hansen continues to deny murders of women who were not involved in sex work, and there were many more X's on his own aeronautical map than police could account for in person. So despite the work set out for investigators, 
they knew that his harm had been much more severe. To hold up the police's legal end of the bargain, Robert Hansen was charged and pled guilty to four counts of first-degree murder on February 18, 1984, in the murders of Paula Goulding, Joanne Messina, Sherry Morrow, and the Ekletna Annie Doe. Only a week later, on February 27th, Superior Court Judge Ralph Moody sentenced Hansen to 461 years plus life without the possibility of parole, before he was remanded to the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. Again, this comes as no surprise, but Hansen's second wife would divorce him shortly after his conviction, and would leave Alaska with their two children for good. To me, it's unclear how much she knew about his crimes, if anything at all, and the same goes for his children even today. Well after his conviction, investigators were still on the hook to piece together the vast breadth of Robert Hansen's crimes. And by May of 1984, investigators had been able to uncover seven bodies at grave sites which he had identified, but the rest have never been recovered. On April 24th of that year, they found Sue Luna. Sue was 23 years old and working as a sex worker in a nightclub when she was offered $300 to shoot professional nude photographs with a patron at the club. This patron was evidently Robert Hansen, and on May 26th of 1982, she met with him in the parking lot of a diner in Anchorage. Robert Hansen abducted and murdered Sue Luna by stripping her naked and allowing her to flee into the woods before shooting her and burying her body near the Nick River. The same day that her body was found, April 24th, 1984, investigators recovered the remains of Malay Larson, a 28-year-old woman whose life and legacy is almost entirely absent from the online world. She was discovered in a parking lot close to the Nick Arm Bridge, very far northeast of Anchorage. The next day, April 25th, investigators found the body of Delyn Renee Frey, a 22-year-old woman last seen sometime in March of 1983, but she was never reported missing. Robert Hansen admitted to abducting and killing her before dumping her on another Nick River sandbar. But still, even after she was found, she remained unidentified until 1989, originally buried as a Jane Doe. On April 26th, investigators found the remains of 22-year-old Teresa Watson and 24-year-old Angela Federn. Teresa was last seen in Anchorage on March 25, 1983, after informing her roommate that she was meeting a man who would give her $300 in exchange for an hour or two of her company. Robert Hansen admitted to murdering her at Scenic Lake, a very small, remote lake far south of Anchorage in the Alaskan wilderness. He was unable to bury Teresa, and so he simply abandoned her where she died, but it was remote enough that she remained uncovered for some time. Similarly, Angela Federn was last seen on 4th Avenue in Anchorage sometime in February of 1983, but she was not reported missing until May of that year. Robert had kidnapped and murdered her before dumping her on Figure 8 Lake, a larger but equally isolated water body west of Anchorage. On April 29th, investigators found Tamara Pedersen. She was a 20-year-old dancer at a nightclub in Anchorage and was last heard from on a phone call with her family on August 7, 1982. Tamara, like many others, claimed to have been offered money to pose for photographs, but instead departed to meet an untimely demise at the hands of Robert Hansen. Tamara was found by the old Nick River Bridge, which is now abandoned, just under two years from when she went missing. Finally, on May 9th, investigators located the remains of 41-year-old Lisa Futrell. She was also working at a nightclub at the time, and was kidnapped years prior on September 6, 1980. 
Lisa failed to return home one evening and evidently was reported missing by her housemates. But unbeknownst to them, she had been deceased next to a gravel pit by the Nick Arm Bridge. There are others that Robert never confessed to, but he is very closely linked to. And the murder that is debated both if it was his responsibility and if it was possibly his first, is the kidnapping and murder of 18-year-old Celia Beth Van Zanten, which occurred only three days after the second sexual assault in 1971, where the charges were dropped against him as a part of a plea bargain. On December 22nd of 1971, Celia was at home with her two brothers who she shared a house with on Nick Avenue in West Anchorage, close to the Ted Stevens International Airport. In the late evening, her brothers had been smoking marijuana and watching a movie, which she joined in halfway through. But nearing 8.30 p.m., she decided she wanted to have a soda since there were none in the house, and so she left to the nearby Bilo Market to get some. The Bilo closed at 9 p.m., so Celia didn't have much time and left right away, noting to her brothers that she was on the hook for babysitting that night for one of their cousin's friends. But if he arrived before she got back, to tell him just to wait for her, because it should be a short trip. But Celia Beth didn't make it to the Bilo, and she never got her soda. And her disappearance was only reported two days later by her brothers, who had just assumed that she had been picked up on the way to the store or seen along the way and taken to go to her babysitting gig, which is why she never returned. Celia's body was discovered a few days later on Christmas Day within the massive wilderness escape that is Chugak State Park, east of Anchorage. The location of Celia's body matches up to one of the X's on Robert Hansen's aeronautical map, but he denies killing her, likely again because she was not a sex worker. To him, those murders were justified. These were maybe not necessarily so. Celia had been bound, sexually assaulted, and her chest had been sliced open. Despite her injuries, though, post-mortem examination noted that she had been dumped alive into a deep ravine before dying from exposure, not from her injuries. Forensic surveillance of the scene even noted evidence that she had attempted to climb up and out of the ravine, but simply was unable to. If this were to be Robert Hansen's first murder, his MO, or modus operandi, does check out. The general definition of someone's MO is simply their habit or a way of doing something, the procedural ways in which a person undertakes a specific task. It's a term I'm sure most, if not all of you, are already familiar with in the context of criminal investigations. When it comes to psychologically troubled serial murderers like Robert Hansen, undoubtedly he began to exemplify a routine of sorts when killing to scratch his proverbial itch for murder as a form of revenge and control. So the circumstantial pieces of Celia Beth's murder certainly do fit with the way Robert Hansen desired to and eventually would perfect his murders. But if it's possible that this was his first, it makes sense because this one was sloppy, given that she died of exposure and not from her injuries. Another that Robert denies is Megan Emmerich, who was 17 years old when she disappeared on July 7th of 1973 in Seward, Alaska, about a two-hour drive south from Anchorage. Megan was petite, about 5'4 and 120 pounds with brown hair, hazel eyes, and freckles. When she was last seen, she was wearing blue jeans with a brown short-sleeve sweatshirt, a white long-sleeve checkered shirt, and suede ski boots, leaving a dormitory laundry room at the Seward Skill Center boarding school which is now called the Alaska Vocational Technical Center. I couldn't find much about Megan or what she was studying at the school other than what programs the school offers now, which it seems to be a community college, offering programs such as culinary arts, construction technology, and industrial electricity. 
But regardless, it seemed that whatever she was studying at the school, it was set out to be a practical occupation that would set her up for a good life in Alaska, or even beyond if she wished. But unfortunately, she was never seen again after July of 1973. When she disappeared, Megan left all of her personal effects behind, including her ID. Before contacting police, her roommate at the boarding school reportedly conducted a three-day search for her, but it was unsuccessful. Even to this day, her body has never been found. Although he denies killing her, Robert Hansen was in Seward at the time Megan went missing and admits to that. But circumstantial evidence does link him to the crime. For example, it's thought that one of the X's again on his aeronautical map corresponds to the location of her body in an area called Resurrection Bay, as well as another X nearby that could correspond to the site of 22-year-old Mary Thill's remains. Even further, this suspicion was further corroborated by one report I read that stated that a former inmate spoke with Hansen, who admitted that at least Mary Thill was buried there. But despite law enforcement bringing Hansen out to search the areas, neither women have ever been found. Mary Thill disappeared almost two years to the date of Megan Emmerich. Her husband was working on the construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, which would finish a few years later in 1977, and inevitably tie in to Robert Hansen's success as a prolific serial murderer. On July 5th of 1975, she was being driven into Seward by a friend, as her and her husband had lived just outside of the main city limits. Ironically, her friend was taking her to a local bakery, although it wasn't Hansen's, as his was in Anchorage. Mary was last seen sometime later in that day, reported only by one other friend who had seen her walking nearby a waterfall close to her home, although I can't find this sighting substantiated in many places. However, regardless of where her last sighting was, she was last seen wearing an army-type jacket with Levi's jeans and a gray pullover sweater. That much is true. Mary also had on toughy leather hiking boots and was carrying a backpack while wearing thick, round, pink-framed eyeglasses. But again, Mary, nor her body, nor any of her personal effects have ever been seen again. And again, although Robert denies killing her, he does admit his convenient presence in the area at the time that she went missing. As a result, he was listed as an official suspect in 2008, many years too late, albeit, and only six years before he would die. I want to mention that it's thought by many that the construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline contributed to Robert Hansen's success as a prolific serial killer. The Trans-Alaska Pipeline construction was an opportunity bountiful with good-paying jobs, and ended up attracting a booming sex work industry as a result of men with good-paying jobs hanging around the area. Robert Hansen's bakery was perfectly situated, quote-unquote, for business and for kidnapping, according to LeelandHale.com, which has been a major source for this episode. According to that site and a series of blog posts, the bakery was directly off of major highways and only minutes from the Merrill Field Airport, where Hansen's plane was. I think this partially contributes to Robert Hansen's victim profile eventually becoming more specified towards sex workers, that in his convoluted justification of their murder versus others. Other victims who had succumbed to Robert Hansen but have never been found include 24-year-old Roxanne Eesland, who disappeared in June of 1980. Roxanne had been living at the Budget Motel on Spennard Road in Anchorage with her boyfriend for about two weeks, and on June 28th, she was scheduled to meet an unknown man in the downtown Anchorage area. Evidently, this unknown man is thought to be Robert Hansen. Roxanne was never seen or heard from since, and her remains had never been found, despite Hansen admitting responsibility for her death. 
She was last seen wearing a short brown leather coat with a fur collar, pants or blue jeans, and black high-heeled boots. She also may have been carrying a purse and may have been wearing wired glasses, neither of which have ever been found. Roxanne had brown hair and brown eyes and may have been using an alias at the time, such as Karen Lee Barnsgaard or Robin Lee Eastland. She was reported missing two days after her disappearance under that Karen alias, according to the Doe Network. There was also 24-year-old Andrea Altieri, who disappeared on December 2nd, 1981, around 11 p.m. when she was last seen entering a taxi on her way to the Boniface Mall in Anchorage. According to friends, she was intended to meet a man for a photo shoot and to dance for him, but, like many others, she has never been seen or heard from since. When Andrea disappeared, she was wearing a black leather jacket, a red sweater, and plenty of jewelry. One piece of note was a unique fish necklace that she had. The necklace was custom-made, with a gold chain and a small sterling silver pendant in the shape of a salmon with a diamond in the eye. Interestingly, according to Andrea's friends, her nickname was Fish, a name they haven't been able to holler out to her since that day back in 1981. Hansen claims to have met Andrea, blindfolded her, and handcuffed her, before bringing her to the Nick Arm Bridge. After sexually assaulting her, Hansen killed her with a 22 automatic pistol when she retaliated against his advances. Andrea had tried to fight for her life, but Robert Hansen had other plans. And after she died, he stole her necklace and weighted a duffel bag with gravel before tying it to her body and tossing it into the Nick River. Andrea has never been found, but when authorities were executing warrants on Robert Hansen's home, he had been in possession of her fish necklace still. Finally, a victim I wanted to highlight is 19-year-old Robin Pelkey. Robin was living in Anchorage in the 1980s and disappeared back in July of 1983. Her partial remains had been found alongside many others that were discovered in the spring of 1984, but they were found in Palmer, Alaska, nearby Horseshoe Lake, much, much further away from Anchorage, about a four-hour drive without stopping. It was determined that Robin was stabbed and shot in the woods. However, what stuns me the most about her is that she remained unidentified until 2021. From her discovery in 1984 until October 2021, Robin was known as Horseshoe Harriet, unnamed and unclaimed for almost 40 years. However, with the advent of forensic genetic genealogy, Robin was identified through a relative living in Arkansas, and investigators were able to use her identification to retrace her steps. They discovered that she was born in Colorado and had moved to Alaska to pursue a new life. I wanted to highlight her story as a beacon of hope that despite the elapsed time, there was always hope in finding and identifying victims. 40 years later, Robin was able to get a gravestone with her name on it, and although she never technically received justice, her story can now be told. In 1988, Robert Hansen was returned to Alaska to become one of the first inmates in the new Spring Creek Correctional Center in Seward. He was moved around a few more times, remaining infamous no matter his location. Reportedly in 1990, at the Lemon Creek Prison in Juneau, Alaska, authorities found another aeronautical chart, a hand-knitted winter hat, magazine articles on plastic explosives, and some evidence of correspondence with a boat broker in his cell. Comments from the superintendent at the facility, Dan Carruthers, in an article by the Anchorage Daily News, noted it as the bust of a decade, quote, we nabbed him before he could do any more damage to anyone. Evidently, Robert Hansen's compulsions would not let him stop, no matter what the barriers in place were. However, he was moved a final time in 2014 
to the Anchorage Correctional Complex to be placed in medical segregation as his health declined in his old age. He died that year in August at the age of 75. By all accounts, good riddance. It's speculated by law enforcement that Robert Hansen may have upwards of 37 victims in his repertoire. If it weren't for law enforcement dismissal, as is the case in many of the stories I tell, early on in Robert Hansen's crime sprees, it's possible that many lives could have been saved. In my opinion, there are many pitfalls to this story, the obvious ones being total dismissal of Cindy Paulson's testimony back after she was kidnapped and escaped, but also pitfalls in systems that allowed Robert Hansen to own and possess a plane, knowing full well that he was capable of flying it, even though he didn't have a license to do so, which ended up becoming his main vehicle to transport victims to the Alaskan wilderness. Although this was quite a long time ago, and psychiatric science has advanced quite a bit since then, there are pitfalls to be mentioned in the medical system that allowed Robert Hansen to weasel his way through psychiatric evaluations, letting him out on parole earlier than expected, back into the free world as a predator. I think the one positive from law enforcement in this case that I would like to highlight is the fact that the Alaska State Troopers and the Anchorage Police Department ended up coming together quite early on in the investigation into the deaths. And it was because of sharing of documents, mostly due to the diligence of Detective Glenn Floth, that the trail of crumbs that Robert Hansen was leaving behind started to be followed a lot sooner than maybe what would have otherwise been expected when a bunch of sex workers go missing. I grieve for the families who have lost loved ones to Robert Hansen and will never find proper justice. Although I understand a plea bargain in this case was really the only way to seek a conviction while also getting a full confession out of Robert Hansen, while also avoiding a trial, it's unfortunate to see how many victims are separated from those he was officially convicted for, because all of those families, all of those loved ones, they all experience the same grief. If you're curious to do any further reading into the case of Robert Hansen, I will leave all the links I used for source material in this episode on my website at crimopediapod.ca. Additionally, there are a number of documentaries that you can watch. I haven't seen all of them, so I can't speak on whether or not they're sensationalized, but I will have all of those listed on my website as well. In addition, there are a number of films and TV series that have adapted the case of Robert Hansen in ways that I don't know if I necessarily agree with, but they are interesting nonetheless, and if nothing else, they certainly do portray the fear that his victims would have felt in their final moments. I will have those linked on my website as well. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia Podcast. If you'd like to connect with me, you can do so on my website at crimopediapod.ca, or you can connect with me on Instagram at crimopediapod. You can suggest a case, or we can talk about one I've just covered, such as this one. I know I left out so much information in the case of Robert Hansen. There's just way too much to cover, I couldn't possibly do it. But his life, his crimes, and the way that he navigated himself in and out of trouble throughout the entire thing just fascinates me, and so I'd love to hear your two cents. I think that's all from me, everybody. Take care, and I'll see you here next time for the next episode on January 15th of 2024. In the meantime, have a happy new year and stay safe.